there, I'm Michelle Bunch, and this is Enthusiasm Diaries. Enthusiasm is contagious, and in this podcast, we get to share in the enthusiasm of others and perhaps spark some of our own curiosity along the way. Thanks so much for listening. Well, hi there. I am so happy to be here today talking with Dr. Ben Brewer, who is the Associate Professor of Medicine at the CU Anschutz Medical Campus. Ben is a clinical health psychologist, and he works specifically in the division of hematology, um, which means a lot of things, but primarily um, Ben works with patients and families as they undergo bone marrow transplant, also known as blood and marrow transplant. So I've had the privilege of knowing Ben for, gosh, I'd say uh, seven or eight years now. We got to work together for a few of those years. And I know I've always found you to be a super interesting person, and I'm sure others will enjoy hearing about you. So thanks, Ben, for being here. Thanks so much, Michelle. I uh, appreciate the warm introduction. Sure. Well, just just to start, um, you you work with with cancer patients, and being a, a health psychologist, you're um, specifically in an area called psychosocial oncology. Is that right? Yeah, um, that's correct. Yeah. Can you can you tell us a little bit about really what that means and why why it's important? Sure. So. You know, as everyone knows, cancer is such a difficult illness, and um, my patients have blood cancers, so things like leukemia, lymphoma, multiple myeloma, and other ones. Um, and those are very tough cancers to deal with. And currently, we do procedures um, called bone marrow transplants, where we either give them a new immune system to fight cancer or we put them through um, some treatment to help their um, cancer go away. And both of those procedures use big chemotherapy. Um, Mm -hmm. And so that is really, really hard on my patients. And so for lots of reasons, um, I'm involved in their care from the beginning. Um, You know, being diagnosed is a really challenging process and people need support around that. Families need support around that. For sure, Um, yeah. We do a lot of caregiving work also. Um, And so psycho-oncology really is involved with supporting uh, both the mental health, but also the um, things that really influence outcomes, such Mm as uh, adherence to medication taking, um, to following uh, difficult procedures, uh, even things like if you have a lot of anxiety around going through a CT scanner, um, there's there's all these different ways in which we can be useful. Um, mostly we help people with depression and anxiety associated with the cancer and then help solve problems that allow their treatment to go forward. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. And, and as far as treatment, when you're, you're talking about chemo, but, um, particularly for patients as they undergo a, a stem cell transplant, I mean, that's, that can be one of the most challenging type of, um, of cancer treatments out there. For seems. sure. Yeah, it's, it's really challenging. And the procedure itself has its own mortality rate. Um, I happen to think our team is one of the best in the world at doing this and our outcomes kind of match that, but um, it's still a, a process fraught with uh, difficulty for sure. You really get to know your page, patients pretty in depth. That's actually one of the things I, I really love about my work is that, you know, sometimes even for years, we get to know our patients very, very well. And, um, you know, my team and I work 
and get to support families all the way through the whole process of transplant, which really takes almost a year if you put all the pieces together. Wow. Uh, and then sometimes we end up knowing them for, for a very long time as they go through different treatment courses. And, you know, our aim is to cure them, uh, but sometimes it doesn't work that way. And so you're there for good times and you're also there for very difficult times or even end of life. And right. the intensity of that and the um, ability to really, really connect with families uh, and see them frequently is something I really, really love about my work. Mm-hmm. And and I imagine with this kind of treatment and the the length of time, you're you're really in the course of you knowing patients and families. You're really dealing with them as they're kind of dealing with the big questions that come up the the existential fears, the the concerns, the why me those those big kind of questions. Um, uh, uh- yeah, absolutely. Um, that is that is something that really draws me to this work. Um, and working around death, you know, even if you have a, a good prognosis, being diagnosed with, say, leukemia, you know, in people's minds, it brings up the very real possibility of dying. Mm-hmm. And it means that we get to have very deep, authentic conversations much of the time. Uh, in a much shorter time scale than you would if I was a therapist in private practice, seeing people that were physically well. Right, right. Well, and I and I want to kind of talk a little more about that specifically because another thing that's I find to be so interesting about you is um, your background in philosophy as well as as psychology. But I'm curious before we do that, um, you know, this is such a a specialty. What, um, it seems like something you just don't wake up one day and say, I'm going to be a health psychologist in a cancer center with bone marrow transplants. So what, what led you just kind of backing up? What, what led you to this work, Ben? Yeah, it's always a complicated path, right? Like how you get to where you are. Um, so I guess I've always been interested in, in, existential issues, meaning, you know, issues around the sort of givens of human existence, including death. Mm-hmm. And when I was, I was already studying psychology, uh, in college. And, um, during my junior year, my mom was diagnosed with metastatic melanoma, which is skin wow. cancer. And it's a very bad skin cancer. And she ended up dying, um, fairly quickly after diagnosis, um, after, uh, trying to do chemotherapy. And, you know, this was a long time ago and our treatments weren't nearly as good as they are now. Right. Um, and, uh, my mom and I were very close and she was a master's level therapist, mm-hmm. um, having nothing to do with oncology. Um, right. but I was already interested in psychology and I was very interested in philosophy and her death sort of sparked even further my interest in cancer. And, oh, uh, I can understand. I, yeah. It took me a few years to sort of recover and, and get my head on my shoulders again after she died. And so I graduated and traveled around a little bit and then moved out to Colorado and worked at a mental health center, mm-hmm. um, having nothing to do with cancer. Um, it was a very difficult job. Uh, and then I went to grad school and as I was in grad school, I, I did, my first practicum was at Kaiser. And so I got some exposure to health psychology and found that I really liked the integration of medical and psychological or behavioral variables uh-huh. and being able to help patients in that context. Uh, and then I ended up, um, doing a practicum in hospice, which I really liked, um, and helping people at the end of life. But I also didn't really love that everyone died. 
And the medicine right. piece was much simpler there. Um, you know, there are a lot of complexities to good hospice care, mm-hmm. um, but I, I want it to be somewhere where there's a, a lot of cutting edge research and there's a lot of different pieces. Um, yeah. And so I've always been really, really interested in the intersection of kind of psychology hard science like biology and then also philosophy mm-hmm. and that's always been there um so, since you were since you were really young you'd say the philosophy piece when you say oh, it's yeah. all I was okay. such a nerd in high school. I started a, uh, a the philosophy club. Like <laughs> I was pretty, like I was pretty unusual in that regard. Were you the president um, of the club? I was the founding person. Yeah, <laughs> it was pretty funny. I think there were like five of us. It was great. Oh, that's um, awesome. <laughs> so yeah, I've always been interested in philosophy and in um, sort of these things where science really can help inform philosophy. I think debate is fun, but it's nice to answer questions using biology. Yeah, and because uh, cool. that's where my interest sort of lies, and so. So after grad school, you know, I graduated and I tried doing like private practice for a year and it was terrible. I really didn't like it. Um, Would you have a sense why, like what didn't fit for you? Yeah, it was a couple of things. Like I I always love people. Like I loved my patients. I enjoyed that part of it, but I was very isolated. Yeah. Um, And I really like being on a team. And that's part of what I like about medical um, psychology is that you're team sport. It's totally a team sport and you're (laughs) embedded, uh, with people that really are passionate and where there's a lot at stake. And, um, I actually really am drawn to that kind of intensity. Mm -hmm. And so I was doing private practice and, um, my partner at the time, she was like, you know, there's this postdoc and it's at, it's involving bone marrow transplant. And I had to figure out what bone marrow transplant was. Um, I knew what psycho-oncology was. Um, a little Google search there. Yeah, right. And and I was like, oh my gosh, this is this is really interesting science. Mm-hmm. And it matched up with the, the intensity and the sort of existential work that I like doing. But there was this sort of hope about like, you know, we might be able to solve some of these problems, but they need help. And there's a big team. Mm-hmm. And I was like, this sounds perfect. So it was the only postdoc that I applied for. Because it sounds like it checked like every box you had. It did. And I just suddenly became really interested in it. And uh, I think I was really lucky to get this postdoc. It was a fantastic postdoc run by a woman named Terry Simino, um, who's still around in the the metro area. She is uh, fantastic. And so I had this wonderful training experience in a very clinical way. And then right when I finished that, I knew that that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be in psycho-oncology, but specifically, I really liked bone marrow transplant. And I was really lucky that a position opened up at the university right as I was coming out of postdoc. And so I I came here almost 10 years ago. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah. And I've been here ever since. In some ways, not at all. Right. (laughs) In other ways, like for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Um, Yeah. Yeah. It's been interesting. And so I love this work and it's the passion for it has not been lost. Um, And we have a really committed team of people that work really well together here. And I think that's part of what keeps me going. Mm -hmm. Uh, But that's my initial interest. And then weirdly, um, about three years ago, as I was going through this, uh, my dad had had a blood issue for a while right. uh, that was treated. It's called Waldenstrom's macroglobulinemia, if you're curious. Um, but, uh, that was treated for a while. And, and so I was following his case, but then he developed a really serious lymphoma and actually himself needed a bone marrow transplant while I was already doing oh this gosh. work. So yeah, it was very close to home. Um, and that was very difficult. I mean, it's, it's one thing to have work 
intensity and another thing to have work intensity and home intensity uh, right. Mike and I are very close. And, um, so that was really hard and he had a rough course and a, a difficult recovery actually. Oh. Um, he's doing much better today, uh, although to not that. without yeah. challenges, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but so that actually is interestingly, it added even more passion, I think, to trying to make things better for patients and families, you know, at a, at an overarching level as they mm-hmm. go through. So that's, that's where my interest and where my passion comes from for this job. Yeah. Well, it just seems like the the perfect, I mean, truly the perfect job for you. I mean, I couldn't have handpicked something better. So, um, and I know that the patients are just so lucky to have someone like you who's there and, and wants to be there every day. Cause this isn't a kind of job you just roll out of bed and show up to just for a job. <laughs> you know, it's something you're there cause you want to be there. And so, um, so, so I guess just kind of going back to some of the questions about from a philosophical, um, standpoint, just knowing that that intersection exists for you, what questions do you think are the main ones that people bring to you? Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's a whole variety of things from being really worried about dying. I had a patient put it to me very well a number of years ago. They said, and they were dying of a leukemia, if I remember mm-hmm. right. And they said something like, um, you know, it's not the dying, it's the leaving. Mm-hmm. And um, they weren't afraid to die. This was an older person, but they were afraid of leaving everyone that they were attached to. And so that's definitely a common thing that patients bring up. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, other people are very acutely worried about the death process or dying. Mm-hmm. Other people are worried about the side effects of treatment. Right. Um, people frequently have beliefs that from our medical perspective, put their lives in danger. You know, there are people that believe that, um, there's a vast conspiracy of, uh, you know, uh, oncologists that sort of are sitting on a secret cure for cancer and maintaining this chemotherapy thing. And I've watched patients die, um, from that problem. And I've also tried mm-hmm. to help people understand how we know what we know and sort of the philosophy of science that underlies mm-hmm. modern medicine. Right. Um, and so those are always really challenging for me. Um, but I do bring out my philosophy background when talking to people around those issues. Mm-hmm. Um, and then a lot of it's, you know, understandable depression from poor quality of life, dealing with chemotherapy and before they've recovered. Right. Um, that is just so hard. And bone marrow transplants are notorious for some of these situations where things are difficult for a long period of time. And it tests even the the sort of best built people. Right. Um, and so right. I end up being like a coach for motivation and things like that. So those are the problems that I see. Mm-hmm. That, that comes up. Well, and when you were talking about just the concerns that come up with life-threatening illness. I mean, I, I just think so much about, I just think our society as a whole really does not do a good job about talking about death. And it's like, we all do know that sometime we're going to die, but, um, I, I just, I don't, I don't think there's much, and I'm, I'm generalizing of course, but much comfort in really realizing that that I mean, that is the fate for all of us. There's no alternative at some point. I'm curious of your thoughts about that. Yeah. I mean, I've always appreciated, I've had a lot of losses in my life and uh, to to death. And I've always appreciated that oftentimes there's there's that authentic perspective where, you know, we can have a real conversation about someone's beliefs around dying. Right. Um, 
which are very often different than mine. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, I think when we ask, uh, I ask patients about their beliefs, be they religious, philosophical, or spiritual. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think my least, the least interesting answer is, you know, I haven't really thought about it. When patients say that, I'm like, wait, you're like 60 years old and you have a life-threatening disease and you haven't really thought about it. Has that come I, up? Yeah. Yeah. And it's not that I'm judging them for that. It's just very different than the way... I approach things. Like, I think I've been thinking about that question since I was young. And I think mm-hmm. it's fascinating that, you know, that, that we all, that sort of no one gets out alive. And I think that, I think when therapy works well and, and when the medicine has to work well too, for people to be alive, we end up having these conversations about, you know, now that you're alive, what do you want to do with your time? Mm-hmm. And almost dying has made changes often in younger people where they've really sort of embraced their mortality. And I find that often they're, it's like a a critical period after transplant or when they they're recently cured where they can do some work and it ends up changing their life course in a way that it probably wouldn't have been that way before. Mm -hmm. And in my line of work, we call this post-traumatic growth. Um, It's sort of getting something out of a, a frankly terrible situation. Sure. Yeah. But a small good thing that you never would have gotten otherwise. And I find that really rewarding to help Mm -hmm. foster. And, you know, if you help somebody stop being anxious and stop being depressed, they're able to do that on their own. It's kind of like you get these things out of the way and then they can have that conversation with themselves. And it's really, um, that's really rewarding. Yeah. Very, really fascinating. What about questions that come up? Why me? Why right now? Why, why am I going through such a horrible thing? I find, you know, there's this old idea, it's been named the just world hypothesis, Mm -hmm. um, but all of us are familiar with this idea that we get as children. I think that um, the good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people, right? Mm -hmm. And, And, you know, somebody who just randomly seemingly gets this horrible cancer, um, that requires so much treatment to make better, um, it it really highlights the sort of randomness and it violates that just world hypothesis that that that's actually, of course, we know that that's not true. There are some belief systems that have that as true. Mm -hmm. Um, right. I mean, some, some parts of Christianity, some parts of the Muslim faith, other parts, there are faith traditions that hold that. I mean, Hinduism in a way has a, um, a bent in that direction, right. That if you Mm -hmm. behave well, good things will happen to you. Sure. Yeah. what I think is interesting is watching that rule. I, I, I have never believed in that rule. I think that the terrible things happen to wonderful people all the time. Right. Uh, and there's a joke, and I don't think it's statistically true, but there's a joke among our team, and I think probably most oncology teams, that, well, they were super nice, and so clearly they have a terrible prognosis, mm-hmm. right? Um, and that's probably not actually true, but it, it uh, feels you that feel way. feel like that, Cause just, yeah. Because there is this sense of injustice, right? Like we have this folk tradition that we all know isn't true, but we want it to be true. Mm-hmm. And um, not that we really want bad things to happen to bad people either, but it just seems particularly unfair when, you know, a new mother who's the most delightful person ever just, you know, it, there's just these situations that are, right. that are really heartbreaking. And so I find that that helping 
other people come to terms with that. I find that most people do that within the first month of their diagnosis. They wrestle with that really initially. Like, what did I do? Some of them look at exposure to pesticides or sure, people that work in the oil and gas industry. Uh, and there are, you know, there are pathways there. Um, some of them shakier than others, but mm-hmm. like we know that benzene causes leukemia. We know that smoking cigarettes is related. So there's some health things. Sure, but for the yeah. vast majority of my patients, there's really nothing. And the, the physicians always say, you know, we don't know why. We've had these cancers since the beginning of time. We can't, you know, dogs get them, cats get them. We don't know um, why you got this particular one um, in most cases. And so it, it is this sort of classic existential problem of this horrible thing just happened out of nowhere. Right. I mean, sort of like an earthquake where there's just, there's no seeing it coming. It just happens. And we, as humans, I see my role as a human that's there to help other humans that this has happened to adjust to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and try to make the best out of it if we can. And if there is growth, that's great. But sometimes it's just surviving it. Just um, getting through it. Yeah. Yeah. Does that answer your question? Oh, yeah, I, I think so. And um, I, I know um, when you when you have these discussions, I'm just curious, are there other philosophical, because I, I just think your background in this is so fascinating. Are there other philosophical ideas that inform your practice or you, you find that that come up often with patients? Sure. A lot of them, um, a lot of them I keep to myself, but they help me in a certain way. And I'll explain more about that. I know, uh, you and I have talked about how I'm, I'm, I would identify, uh, sort of philosophically as a secular humanist, which means that I don't, I don't really believe in God. Um, or, or any kind of divine, um, thing, but I do believe in a lot of humanistic values that are very important to me, um, that are not dissimilar to sort of a Judeo-Christian worldview. Right. Um, but I, when I was very young, I sort of looked at the evidence and thought, you know, it just, it seems like this, this God thing is something that we're keeping around as a society and as a culture because it comforts us. Mm-hmm. But I, in, and this, not everyone will agree with this. And many of my patients are very religious. And uh, so I don't share this with them, but, um, but, you know, my belief is that, that I wanted to figure out what was true using essentially the methodology and tools of science. Mm-hmm. I've been that way since I was eight. Like, right. I, I mean, I became an atheist at eight, probably. Okay. Yeah. And it just, and it's not that I haven't studied it. I've studied philosophy of religion. I've read the Bible. I've been to church. I was raised in an Episcopal, um, and before that, like a Methodist context. And so I'm very familiar with, with faith. In fact, my mom, before she died, was actually training to be an Episcopal priest. Oh, really? Um, and that was a that. big, yeah, that was a big part of her life. And mm-hmm. I almost feel like I took that energy and sort of have, you know, used science to determine my truth, but have gone in a similar helping direction. Right, right. Um, and I, I used to say, like, if, if I believed in God, I think I would have been a, a priest or a pastor, um, probably a very liberal one. But, um, <laughs> but you know, that, but I yeah. don't. And so I'm a psychologist. Yeah. Um, and, and Michelle, you and I have talked about um, how I see our hospital. You know, in the old days, you used to go to church um, when you were sick and right. they would help you. Yeah. And I see this as a secular church. And instead of religion, we use science and we have all these wonderful towers all over campus where there's just tons of lab space and tons of brilliant people that came from all over the world to 
you know, to our center to help cure cancer and right. to help solve this so it doesn't happen to anybody else. And that inspires me every day. I mean, I like that when we're up in the hospital and I'm talking to somebody during their bone marrow transplant, I can look out the window and point out to them, you know, see that tower over the, over there, there's a group of people working on your disease right now so that oh. this doesn't... So we don't have to do these powerful image. Yeah. Just right. And so that's a, that's a big piece of it. And so I feel like it's a a team where we're all just here to make things better. Um, And I feel like this place radiates that like particularly our bone marrow transplant team, everybody has big hearts Mm -hmm. and they work to that. Yeah. Yeah. And they work really hard. Um, And then I have this other idea that gives me empathy. You know, cancer happens to, to everybody. Uh, it doesn't seem to be any rhyme or reason. It happens to murderers. It happens to, you know, people who are probably up for sainthood in some traditions. Right. Um, right. And it, it just doesn't discriminate. And uh, I like the broad swath of people that we see, but some of them are more difficult to have empathy for than others. Mm-hmm. And sure. I have this idea that's probably even more unpopular than than me being secular or being an atheist, um, which is that I actually don't, I strongly suspect or or really believe that we probably don't have free will like we all imagine that we do. And it's not that I can really live my life that way. I like to think when I write a paper or I do something great with a patient or I give a good talk or something that I'm responsible for that in a deep way. But I think if you look, at least from my perspective, if you look and, you know, this debate has been going on for like several thousand years in philosophy. It's not my idea. (laughs) Um, But I think if you look at modern science and what it's contributed to that debate, it really is very clear to me that we didn't choose the consequences of our upbringing or our even maternal fetal development. Right. And we didn't choose our genes. Right. That wasn't up to us. Right. Yeah. There's no choice in that. And if we are just looking at the rules of science that kind of one thing leads to another, there isn't actually a lot of space for free will, a free choice that would be our choice, conscious choice to come in. And there's all this biological research that says that before you move your left arm, we can see a process in the brain that is already rolling on that decision that leads to you moving around before you're consciously aware of it. And so the consciousness is playing catch up and is a useful thing for lots of factors in being a human. Um, But it really is something that comes sort of dragged along after the brain has made the decision in a biological way. So in that way, we're sort of more like robots. And I really believe that. And, you know, that, that has all kinds of implications that are sort of terrible. Like it throws our justice system up in the air, locking, locking people up for things they can't help doing is. Oh, uh, sure. Yeah. So I'm in favor of therapy, right? Um, (laughs) Like we can help people. It's not that that's not an, uh, there's a ability to change course, right? If something happens to you, say you have a good mentor or a therapist or you win the lottery, your life is different. Right, right. That. There's outside circumstances. Yeah. And so I mean. see my job is to influence that causal chain mm-hmm. in a way that that helps people. And um, is there kind of like t- finding ways where there's like finding the things within a situation that are movable or controllable or adjustable, knowing that there's other set factors? Like, is, could that be a way to describe it? Yeah. So like people have their own limitations. Brains only work so well. Right. right? And we don't have our strengths and weaknesses. And it's my job to sort of look at that and figure out what do we have that works and uh, how do we optimize that? Like, how can I 
what tricks can I teach you uh, about managing emotions, about changing your behavior, about motivation uh, that are evidence-based, you know, that are based in, in sort of research that have been shown to really help people get better. Mm-hmm. Um, talking about suffering does not actually improve suffering that much. Um, and, and there's lots of evidence to show that you need to really change something. Uh-huh. And I try to do that quickly. We don't, part of what I like is it's, it's like a short attention span, uh, therapy, uh, right. So we have to change things like fast. If you're having panic attacks and can't go through the CT scanner, we got to do something today. Right. You can't just have yeah. 10 sessions and wait around. Um, and so I really enjoy that kind of work, but back to the free will piece, I think, it gives me a profound empathy. You know, we have patients that are that are addicted to heroin that are trying to stay stable and and really experiencing multiple relapses and not following up. And it's very easy to get frustrated with them. Oh, sure, yeah. And I keep in my head that if 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 I'm right that they don't actually have free will, they really have just been saddled with this, and they're forced to live it out, um, mm. whether they like it or not. And it becomes, it gets it away from being more of a motivational problem to being one that we should have deep empathy for. Right, right. And it keeps me connected to them. You know, we have people with personality disorders who, you know, in the past have been very difficult and Mm -hmm. have murdered people or insulted others on our team. No one's been murdered on my team, but they were murderers in in the past Mm -hmm. life. And so my belief about there being no free will um, helps me have this kind of really deep level empathy. Yeah. Um, and then it, it runs into this sort of existential belief that we're really, we're just all really doing the best we can on this planet. Mm-hmm. Um, and as far as we know, we're it. Right. Um, and so and that a, we all die. Right. Right. Is it, is it, does that kind of, I'm just kind of trying to work that idea around in my brain. It's almost like kind of takes the, I mean, whether we want to admit it or not, we all have judgments and we all have preconceived notions of, people. And as I'm hearing you say that it's like removing the judgment that and the labeling and all the things that sometimes we, we all probably do, um, in, in working with people and being able to see them kind of just for their innate humanness. Is that? That's exactly it. Okay. Yeah. It, it doesn't allow you to say, well, they might just be a little lazy Mm -hmm. or maybe it's a character failing that they keep using, you know, methamphetamine and heroin and all these drugs, or maybe, um, you know, it it allows you to have this deep empathy that they're stuck in this position Mm -hmm. and that they maybe not have a choice about it. Mm -hmm. And I found it's really interesting almost by accepting that and approaching them deeply as a human, um, that's stuck in this position, you end, they end up seeing that they can read it from you. Sure. And they, it changes their motivation there. They actually, it opens up, um, you know, things and connections where the relationship becomes much more powerful. Mm -hmm. And I think that a lot of therapists do that while still believing in free will. But for me, that's a trick that I use. And it's one I believe in Mm -hmm. um, that, that works for me. Um, I think some people use religious ideas to do that. You know, if you believe that God ordained the situation, it's a similar kind of way around judgment, right? Right, Even our internal judgments. So maybe it's any way to like remove any barriers that, that limit the ability to connect like human to human, like the deep rooted parts of us to another person. Yeah. In a way. I mean, yeah. And that's, yeah, that's exactly it. Yeah. Wow. And it, it's, is, is that, that free will question, is that something that 
you often talk about with patients or is it more just kind of, again, what you were saying, how that, that belief allows the, the ongoing empathy that you have? It's often personal to me. Mm -hmm. Very occasionally I will share with patients that are more philosophical and, um, probably wouldn't be offended by the idea right? Um, that that's how I view the world, especially if there's a question of them being judged by a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have done that. Um, I, I would actually like to write a paper about the influence of philosophy and the use of philosoph- philosophical ideas instead of just behavioral or psychological ones wow. in treatment. And there, you know, there's lots of places where those cross over in psychology, but nobody's been explicit about things like the free will debate or um, you know, other parts of that. The existentialism piece has been captured well, I think, mm-hmm. in the literature. Um, and you have there to are... do it, Ben. I want the I want the paper because that's that's really why. As I was thinking about you, just wanted to because I think you're your expertise in both those areas is so fascinating. I mean, yeah, I look forward to your research paper. <laughs> yeah. There are some parts of uh, behaviorism that account for the lack of free will, but it's never an overt discussion with patients. And I actually think there are places where that's useful. And that's mm-hmm. what I'd like to write on. Mm-hmm. And, and especially for people that enjoy the, those kind of discussions and find it beneficial. Yeah. It has to be the right patient. Right. You know, honestly, I, I often end up supporting people in their faith mm-hmm. and working through their worldview, which allows right. me to sort of do a thought experiment of like, what if I believed in what they believe in? Mm-hmm. Um, how would I operate? What's the best way to operate as a therapist in that mode? Yeah. Um, and so that's like my philosophical bent I think is helpful in that direction because you're, mm-hmm. you're just changing the rules a little bit and trying to adapt and you adapt your language to fit what they need. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Um, talking a little bit about your, this research paper, I want you to, to, I, I'm super interested to hear how you, how you do that. I'm curious about other research that you've been involved in either in the past or things you're continuing to do now. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. So let me, let me just be transparent in that I'm, I'm really a clinician and a teacher mm-hmm. and I do some research as an associate professor, but it's not a huge piece uh, of what I do. Um, but that said, we have done a lot of really interesting research on caregiving. Um, we found out that the caregivers of our patients are far more distressed than the patients themselves. Wow. Uh, this is of transplant patients going through and we, um, uh, I was co-investigator on a grant that developed a cognitive behavioral therapy intervention um, that's you know been used before, but not in this population. And um, we found that to be very effective in reducing the anxiety and depression symptoms in our caregivers. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it worked very well. Uh, I've also been very interested in sleep and have done some research on sleep in the hospital. In fact, Michelle, I think you helped with part of that research. Uh, I just years think ago. I like the, I remember liking the name of it. Can you say the name of oh, it? Oh yeah. We called it, uh, this is actually not my idea, but we called it project sheep <laughs> and, uh, sheep stood for, it's an acronym. It stood for sleep in the hospital edification and enhancement project. Um, so obviously we made the acronym fit, uh, what we, so it would spell sheep, right, but, yeah. um, yeah, basically the, the problem we're trying to solve and it's something I've been passionate about for a long time is that 
our patients during bone marrow transplant are in the hospital for usually a month or more. And sometimes they've been involved, you know, in the hospital for a month before that for other treatments. And sometimes they get stuck for even up to a year sometimes in the hospital. That's quite rare, but it's happened before. And so the main problem is that people aren't allowed to sleep in the hospital. And uh, by that, I mean that there's, you know, we we need to check their vitals and things, and there's things medically to do, but there's also these pumps that beep and uh, require the patient to kind of be awake and notify the nurse. And there's a lot of light and noise. Um, And this is not just true in in my hospital, but it's true everywhere. Um, And I'm passionate about it. Because it's like you all, everyone knows, like if you have a cold, you rest and you sleep and we all know what sleep can do for healing, but it's, it, it's like, and I know that's the case in the hospital, but it's hard to believe that that's a thing. Like it's hard to sleep there. Yeah. Like maybe the best reason to do it is because people hate not sleeping. It makes you miserable right? and it makes you depressed and anxious. But there's also these other things you mentioned, like, you know, we know that if you don't sleep, you know, outside of a bone marrow transplant, if you don't sleep, your immune reaction to things is blunted. And one of the main problems we have after bone marrow transplant are infections, right? And um, I don't know how all these these sort of medical or biological variables interplay with sleep, but I'm guessing that being sleep deprived is not so great. For right. People. Certainly doesn't help it. Yeah. And so I'm interested in, in actually like sort of trying to prove that piece of things if it's really there. And if it's not, that's that's OK, too. We just want an answer. Mm-hmm. So does sleep deprivation in the hospital interfere with outcomes? Do the bad sleepers have bad outcomes? Essentially? Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, that would be very motivating where we'd want to fix this problem. But I think we want to fix it anyway. So my current project is actually just to look at how we can make it better in the hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've done some things already. We want to do more. And that's sort of like an overarching goal. Before I retire, I'd like to make our hospital better. Uh, and what I really like to do is write a protocol that every hospital can use to make sleep better. And I, of course, I'm not the only one with this idea. There's a mm-hmm. whole community of researchers looking at this, but it's something I'm really motivated for. Yeah. Well, it's easy to tell that. And I, I look forward to all you, all you'll do with that idea moving forward. Cause it's, it's huge. So, um, well, I, I so appreciate just all that this conversation, I'm, I'm curious for you. Um, you, you did such a amazing job kind of explaining what brings you to work every day and what keeps you going. I'm curious just in the nature of these discussions on the enthusiasm diaries, what, what are the the other times against I guess um, work or personal where you just feel the most the most alive the most engaged like what are those things for you Ben? I love that question. It's a question I ask patients when we're doing meaning centered psychotherapy, mm-hmm. um, and I would say like what's meaningful to me or when I feel most alive. Uh, honestly, spending time with my family. Uh, I have a four-year-old son uh, who is just really fun to hang out with. I absolutely love being a dad. Yeah, uh, I knew I would enjoy it, but I really, it's great. Um, yeah. And so he'll light me up and that's a good thing. Um, spending time with my wife, Sarah. Um, spending time in the mountains. Uh, I love skiing. I love being outside in nature. Um, thankfully, living in Colorado, that's not too hard to do. Right, right. Um, Very lucky. So those things, I feel really, really alive. Um, and it's that sort of, you know, I, I'm a sort of cerebral person. And so there's a cool thing about doing an activity where 
you really have to be hundred percent focused because you're moving quickly. Yeah. So be that biking or skiing, or I used to be a paraglider pilot. Um, oh, I forgot so that about you. That's the, so cool. <laughs> so these, these like really intense activities sort of allow you almost to meditate. Like you're actually just there. You're not thinking about being there. Right. It gets and you right to the present moment. I think most people can relate to that, but yeah, you're just in the moment. Mm -hmm. Um, Another place where I feel that is playing music. So um, I play the drums and uh, I've played with- you've recorded some albums, am I correct? Yes, but it's (laughs) uh, apologetically, I would say. Um, (laughs) And so I've played over the years with a number of different people and we've sort of creatively made albums. Um, We have this crazy contest where we try to make one in the month of February every year. And I'm by no means an accomplished drummer, but um, it's really fun to play music with people. And uh, I just, I really enjoy that. It's not something I'm good at, but it is really, really fun. Yeah. I love, I love that about you. I think that's such a cool thing that you do. Well, I, um, I, Ben, I just appreciate you you sharing all this with us. I, I, again, just can't thank you enough. And I, I really, I know I'm super fascinated by the work you do and um, I'm sure others will find that, find it to be that way as well. So thanks again. Yeah. Thanks so much for reaching out. This was really enjoyable. Thanks so much for listening. Please leave a review and share with a friend. And if you're enthusiastic about something and want to share it, please contact me at michelle at enthusiasmdiaries.com.